Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, <clears throat> yeah, you probably guessed it, back to Proverbs chapter 23. And I want to do something a little different today. I, you know, I'm, I'm always looking for ways uh, to show you how to use your Bible. Uh, you know, I, I talked for years and years and years, for those who've been around here, about uh, understanding the concept of, of a working knowledge of the Scriptures. And I've talked about how that the Bible should do the work for you. And uh, you should put actually very little effort into it. I mean, I don't mean you don't study it. You spend the rest of your life studying it. But I mean as far as the work of learning it. God, you know, and man looks at everything differently than the way that God did it. Man wants to get you to believe that the Bible is the hardest book on the planet. And you've got to spend 20 years of your life going to Bible college and Bible seminary and then studying Greek and Hebrew to uh, finally have a point to understand the scriptures. And of course, that... That fallacy is so uh, out of touch with reality, but people buy into it. I mean, you look at the Bible, you flip through the pages. If it doesn't have any pictures in it, it looks like it's complicated. But uh, it's really not. And I'm always looking for ways to help you get a better handle on it. Uh, I, you know, I, I just, I don't look at my job as just to give you the truth, though that's mainly what my job is. But I just don't want to give you the truth, but I want to show you how to use the truth. I, I think that's so, so not done today, and yet it is probably, what is good is the truth if you don't know how to use it? And I, I try to take every opportunity to teach you how to, how to make that Bible work for you. And it's, it's not a hard concept. There's just If you can just get down and work through and master four or five different aspects, it, it'll, all, it'll all come come in the line. Some of them are hard, I get that, but most of them are easy. And the way you learn the hard ones is by figuring out the easy ones, because you use the same system. And today we're going to be in Proverbs chapter 23, verses 13 through 14, and we're going to deal with the text. We've already covered a lot of the material here several uh, months ago when we did our child uh, training classes out of Proverbs chapter 23, verse 6. Uh, but uh, these verses are here. And I want to deal with them, but I want to use them. Uh, this is, these, are very, these are two really good examples of what I want to show you today. Now, let's read it here. It says, Withhold not correction from the child, for if thou beatest him with the rod, he shall not die. <laughs> uh, yeah, I get it. Okay, thank you for being here today. Uh, if we take up another offering, I'll let you go home early. How would that work for you? Okay. Verse 14, thou shalt beat him with the rod and, and shall deliver his soul from hell. Yeah, amen, amen, amen. Okay. Now, I want to use these two verses to show you something. Uh, these are, uh, and verse 13 says, Well, hold not correction from the child, for if thou beat him with a rod, uh, he shall not die. Now, that's a classic verse. And uh, it's used all the time in support for parents uh, who will use corporal punishment in disciplining your children. And I might add that the Bible is in favor, obviously, of corporal punishment. Uh, many, many parents today in the world that we live in, the Christian world, they're totally against any kind of physical punishment for their child. And uh, uh, I, the Bible is very clear that that's not good biblical parenting. Uh, the word corporal punishment, most people hear that term but don't know where it came from. It's an old military term. You know, in your NCO ranks, you have the sergeants, but an NCO below a sergeant is a corporal. Uh, 
and he's given a lot of to oversee a lot of tasks that the sergeants don't want to deal with that they wouldn't give to the PFCs or the privates. And, and years and years and years and years ago, uh, when somebody had to be disciplined, you know, got drunk, out on leave, got into a bar fight, whatever, or had to have some kind of, of, of punishment, it was resigned to the corporal that he would oversee that punishment, whatever it may be. So over time, it becomes physical uh, a punishment. We know it today as corporal punishment. And uh, it's a thing where uh, we, we do that. You hear, the, you hear it all the time where they hear somebody say the corporal of the guard. Now, again, that's because back in the day that that rank of corporal was over the guard. NCOs had their other things to do. I'm not going to give it to a lowly private. It was the corporal that fell on him. So this is, this is where a lot of things come from. You know, in a while back, we took, as I said a moment ago, we took several uh, months and, and dealt with training up your child based on Proverbs 22.6. And that's what the verse goes along with, where it says, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. And, uh, you know, uh, and that's how, you know, corporal punishment, dealing with your children, and sometimes a physical whipping or dealing with them, uh, is, is part of that discipline issue. You're going to see that here today as we move through it. And we laid out all the principles that, uh, that you'll need in dealing, uh, you know, in dealing with your child. And we're not going to go through them all again today. We covered it. You can get it back there. It's probably in book by now. Uh, but we do know that we don't raise our children. We train our children. You may raise dogs, puppies, corn, whatever, but you, ra- you train children. And in training them, the Bible teaches very clearly that there are times that you have to use uh, extreme force to reinforce the principles to them. Uh, and, uh, you know, Proverbs 23, verses 13 and 14, uh, it shows you that principle. But there's more to it than that. And I, I've told you for years that we've been together in the Bible that, that all, all the Bible has three basic fundamental applications to it. And uh, you've been around here any length of time, you, you know that. Uh, when I teach you the Bible on Sunday morning or Thursday night or even in our one-on-one times together, I'm constantly porting out the three applications. I do that because hopefully I'm catch hope somebody will pick up and, and learn how to do it and catch it. And uh, we taught this from very early in our ministry. Uh, and, you know, we reinforce it. We reinforce it today. We know when you look at the Bible as a whole, this verse here, we're going to be our, our test case today. Uh, we know that when you look at anything in the Bible, the Bible itself, but certainly the books, the chapters, and the verses, there's going to be three applications to it. There's going to be a doctrinal application. There's going to be an inspirational, or sometimes we call it the practical application. And then there's going to be a historical application. Now, before I go any farther, I might as well tell you, this is a lost concept today. You will go to the churches around this city or around the country and ask the pastor about something like this, and he'll laugh at you. Uh, he'll laugh at you. He, he, nobody believes this anymore other than some of the hardliners out there, the old school guys. That, uh, uh, but it's a lost concept today and, uh, within Christianity. And along with many other great truths that we have talked about over the months and years and whatever. And because of this, it has led to the issues in the church today. 
the problems that we have. And you're going to see that today, and I want you to learn from this. I want you, this is going to be a great teaching opportunity. I know there's times I preach to you, and I know there's times that I'll kind of teach you some things. Well, this is going to be probably, I'm going to teach you today, but I can't be responsible if I fall off the wagon and let you have it a little bit somewhere in here. (laughs) The missing element of Christianity today is simply that, the inability to see and understand the structure of the Bible and how the Bible structures itself. Now, everybody get your camera out. I want you to get a picture of Bob holding his grandbaby here. This is a classic. Yeah, right, yeah. They're always fun when they're somebody else's. You can send them home when you're done with them. Yeah, I get it. So, uh, today will be a good learning day. It really will. And I, I want to use these two verses to illustrate how uh, to separate them out. I, I'm just not interested in you just knowing some things about the Bible. And that's where most Christians are today. That's certainly where most pastors are. And I, I deal with pastors all the time. I talk with them all the time. I've bumped around them for almost 50 years. Most pastors know a lot of things or some things about the Bible, but they really don't know the Bible. Now, you may be satisfied with that in your life. You may go through your Christian life and just be satisfied with knowing some things about the Word of God. Okay, that, that's your deal. I'm not satisfied with that. And I would hope that most of you would not be also, that you would want to have that working knowledge of the Scripture. And these three areas, these three applications are, the, are essential in learning how to put your Bible together. Last week, we talked about a great verse in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. It talked about that all Scripture was given by inspiration of God, and we talked about how it was profitable. And I gave you four things, and I actually showed you how you use those four things. Doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness. And then it goes on to say that all these four things, when you put them into your life, will perfect you for the work of the ministry. In other words, it'll, it'll get you through everything in life and get you to the place that you, you, you want to be. But I showed you last week, and I want to emphasize it again, the number one thing that it's profitable for is doctrine. And yet that is the single thing that is missing in all the churches today. Do you know why so many Baptist churches have taken Baptist off their name? Because there are certain doctrines that Baptists believe And in the world that we live in, people out there don't like those, so the pastor thinks that if he takes the the name off of it, that it'll be more plausible to everybody uh, because it won't be so threatening. And along with that, then he backs off on those things. And instead of having a clear presentation of truth of what you believe, you become a gray mushball which believes nothing for sure. And people will come there, and they'll, I'm not saying you won't learn some things about the Bible, but you'll never learn the Bible. There's a certain process you've got to go through, and doctrine is number one. And, uh, you know, in a Bible institute, they're bringing uh, all hundred or so people through, you know, all the new young kids and the older ones that want to get into it, and some of you are coming back for a round two. Uh, this next section. We just finished section one, or really section two. Now this next section is we get into the doctrinal section. And we're going to get into some things now, and I'm going to show you how those, how doctrine, what it does for you. Doctrine means to teach. 
it teaches what's right. And the doctrinal application will be what makes the Bible come alive. It's like you can have an engine that is the fastest engine with, with a souped-up cam and bored heads and, and whatever else they put in really hot engines. You can, you can have that engine. But if you don't have just eight spark plugs, it ain't going anywhere. You'd have the biggest church on the planet. You could have the steeple, you know, all those things, you know, and have everything that you could ever want. $50 million sound system, a big praise band, you know, that uh, looks like the Kiss people out there that used to sing there. You'd have everything. But if you don't have doctrine, you have an engine without any spark plugs. All you got is this beautiful big building, this beautiful 427 dual-injected double cams, Devil carburetors. <laughs> but until you just screw in those eight little things and hook them up and it starts firing the cylinders, you got nothing. You're the biggest church on the planet. Until you hook it up to doctrine and it starts firing on the cylinders, you got nothing. You got nothing. The doctrinal application to any passage, to any chapter, to any book, to any verse will always be the key to setting up the context of what you're reading. Because doctrine means to teach. It's a specific teaching. It means what's right. Now, once you have the doctrinal application, I'm going to show you some examples today, starting with this. Once you have the doctrinal application, and you get that one down, the other two pretty much fall into line. They're fairly easy to place. I'm going to show you that today. I'm going to give you, when you get that, you get all, we all three of them, then you have a complete context of what you're reading. Now, the inspirational doctrine is to teach. It's a specific teaching that is going to be there that he's saying. Now, the inspirational will be uh, sometimes called the practical. And after you get the doctrinal teaching down and you see what specifically the Bible is teaching, then you can make a practical application, a spiritual application, uh, to you personally. Uh, and you learn to do that by a couple of other little things to the Bible. One of them is association, what you associate things with in the Bible. And the other is contrast, things that are uh, opposite of each other. Two great tools in, in, in learning your Bible. Now, Most pastors today, and I can speak because I'm a pastor. I don't, I don't pick on, you never hear me pick on politicians because I'm not a politician. You never hear me pick on lawyers because I'm not a lawyer. You never hear me pick on doctors because I'm not a doctor. But I am a pastor and I am a preacher. So I am eminently qualified to speak to my profession. If you were a mechanic and you had your own shop and I came into you and I would say, hey, is there any crooked mechanics in town? You'd have a whole spreadsheet full of them. And you would say to them, well, thank you. I almost went to that guy. Thank you so much. If, if you uh, were going to go see a doctor and, and you, you, know, you, you, you said, uh, oh, I'm going to go see Dr. So-and-so, and somebody says, yeah, we just, we just finished the 20th malpractice suit with that guy. Are you going to say, I don't think you better talk about him that way. You're going to say, thank you. I almost went to him. I didn't want to be 21 malpractice case. You'd be thankful for that. 
human nature is the strangest thing in the world. You'll be happy with everybody pointing out what's wrong with this. But if I get up here and tell you about some pastor out there that's not teaching the Bible right, you get upset about it. I don't understand that. I'm not just somebody blowing smoke. I'm speaking to my profession. I know what my profession is. I get it. I mean, I've been around the block a few times, fell off the wagon six or seven times, but I got back up. But I'm telling you, I've been there. I've seen it. I've seen it. I know. And most peer preachers, honestly, are one-dimensional in one aspect of their preaching. They're either very shallow and give you a lot of practical stuff, but never any doctrine. Or they're really boring. They'll go on and on and on. They'll talk about history. They'll talk about this. They'll talk about that. But when you leave, you really don't have any meat. And, and, and I'm telling you, and, and you know, I've been around for a while. I've saw it with the great preachers. Uh, you get on the radio, you can probably still find these guys. Harry Ironsides was a great Bible practical teacher. He was. Um, J. Vernon McGee. Now, these are names that probably I see some of your older folks that were around in World War I understand what I'm talking about. J. J. Vernon McGee was a, on the radio, a Bible teacher. John R. Rice uh, was, uh, was touted as one of the greatest soul winners uh, that you ever, ever met in your life. And he certainly was. And he, he would go to churches all over the place, and he would preach soul winning conferences, and he would teach the Bible. Uh, Spirio Zodiates. He used to be on the radio. Oliver B. Green, he was on the radio. Uh, all of these guys were filled the airwaves. And you can still find them on some radio stations. I'm sure you could find their sermons because they had hundreds of them. And I'm not knocking them at all. They were really good men. And if you wanted to learn some basic Bible, they were the guys to go through. They really were. But you see, in my life, and I can't speak for you, in my life, I wanted to grow past that. I didn't want to be a, a baby Christian all of my life. I didn't want to just exist in my Christian life on milk. And we got a lot of milkman Christians running around today. Now, you know, back in my day, and I know you don't remember this, I remember when the bread man brought bread to your house. He had a little red truck from Nichols Bakery. And every week he'd have a route and he, you didn't have to go to the, we didn't have 7-Elevens then. We didn't have Quick Trips. We didn't have Casey's. We didn't have any of that stuff. You had a grocery store, AMP, you know, Fishers. <coughs> but a bread man came around and he had bread. And he would, he would have your order every week and he would come to your house and he'd bring you your bread, your rolls or your whatever you wanted. But we also had a milkman. And the milkman would come to your house and he would bring milk. And you always know he had a little white truck, wore a little white suit, little bow tie. You could always hear him coming because he'd clink, he'd have four or five little milk things and a little metal thing, and you could hear him clinking up the walk as he came. And I'd, my mom would say, the milkman's here, Bobby. And I'd say, I don't like milk. Give me a cup of coffee block. And it, 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 but, but there was a milkman. And I find today that, that most churches, honestly, and this is not a criticism. I'm not mad at anybody. I'm just telling you. 
I'm just telling you, I'm speaking to my profession. I am. Most churches are dairy farms. That's all they are. I don't want this church to be a dairy farm. This is a cattle ranch. I mean, yeah, it's where, yeah, yeah. Remember back that old lady, she's dead now, but she used to, she used to go after uh, uh, McDonald's and all the other places, and she'd walk into Burger King, and they'd give her a sandwich, and she'd say, where's the beef? <laughs> That's what you ought to be saying in churches. Now, those guys were good guys, but they were very surface guys. I remember one time years and years and years ago, I picked up two books uh, by uh, 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 John R. Rice. One was a commentary on Genesis. Another one was a commentary on the book of Acts. He, like most of these guys, wanted to write some books. And I, I remember getting those books. I must tell you, they were the worstless. They were the worst money I ever spent. They were absolutely, completely wrong and absolutely, completely worthless. When you take those guys and compare them up against Clarence Larkin, Robert Dick Wilson, Wilbur Pickering, Pentecost, Dr. Ruckman, I mean, there, there is no comparison between the two. And you know, you find that most pastors today, the big thing is now to write a book. I, somebody told me here uh, last six or seven months about a uh, pastor said, I've just finished my, I just finished my first book. And I said, that's good. I'll pray you read another one. <laughs> I mean, it's like it's some status symbol. And you're going to find, don't, 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 just take, don't, take my, just don't take my word for it. Go look, buy their books. Get one where you got a return policy so you can send it back. You know what they'll all write about? Milk. They'll write about the victorious Christian life. They'll write about doing this or doing that. They'll write about victory for the Christian, you know. They'll write a, and, and I'm not saying you don't need those things, but I'm going to tell you this. The road to your victorious Christian life, the road to a victorious Christian life is through doctrine. You'll see that today. You'll see that today. Uh, these guys, uh, when you get over to Hebrews chapter 5, verse 14, it says that strong meat... Doctrine, strong meat, belong to them who are full of age. The Bible says that in 1 Peter, it talks about that babies desire the sincere milk of the Word. I get it. When you first get saved, we want to give you milk. But wouldn't you find a little strange if you walk back into the nursery where they have the babies? And you walk back in there, and there was a 35-year-old guy laying in a crib with his big hairy legs hanging out over the top of it. Can't even fit in it with his arms down there sucking on a bottle. Wouldn't you think that's just a little strange? Wouldn't you think that's just a little strange? Amen. Hey, help me out, Alex. You shoot off about everything else. Wouldn't you think that's a little strange? Thank you. Thank you. But it's, it's not strange when you go to a church and here's a guy that's been saved 10, 15, 20 years, or a woman too, and they're still... Drinking the milk. Now, I know that happens, and I know that will probably happen here, but I don't want it to. This is not going to be a dairy farm. 
When you come in here, you're going to get sirloin steak cut as thick as you want it. You won't be asked the question, do you want skim milk or homogenized? I've never understood what homogenized means, but it sounds good. Strong Christians. Doctrine builds strong Christians. You have to have, you have, to have the meat of the Bible. And I know, I know, hey, I've been around this day, I know, well, you know, yeah, it's one thing about those churches that, uh, that teach all the deep things of the Bible, you know, and, and, uh, but you really gotta, you gotta really know the, the, the spiritual side of the Bible. Oh, give me a break. You know what that is? Let me translate that for you. I don't know anything about the Bible, and I don't appreciate somebody knowing about it me, so I'm gonna use this trap play up the middle to try to think I'm okay. You're a clown. Don't get mad at me. I'm speaking in my profession. I am. I just am. I ought to be allowed to do that. I've not named any names yet. I won't. Now, now you have the historical. The historical will simply be the event, how it played out in real time, in history. Uh, it, it's an actual event that transpired at some point in time. In my teaching to you, I always try to give you all three applications and point them out to you. you you've been around here long enough, you know I do that. A, a, a great example of that, I'll just throw this in, I'm just thinking about it right now. A great example about that is, is probably the book of Psalms. You know, the book of Psalms is probably everybody's favorite verse, a book. It's a time when everybody has trouble that they go to. Their favorite verse in Psalms is that one over there that says, the lying is an abomination in the sight of God, but a very present help in a time of trouble. You know, things like that. It's not in there. <laughs> but it's a thing where Psalms is probably the most read. It's probably the most favorite book, and it certainly is a key book, but most people never get it because they don't get the full flavor of Psalms, because they've never seen the three applications of Psalms. You know, in all your Bible works just like this, and I know there are some hard things, but most, 90% of it is very easy. You look at the book of Psalms. Doctrinally, you have three things in Psalms. You, you learn this. This is how Psalms opens itself up. Psalms is three things. Psalms will be about the Jew in the tribulation, typified by David, one, going through the tribulation, so you'll have what you call the tribulation psalms. David, Israel being delivered at the second coming, so you'll find the second coming psalms. And then you'll find the praise psalms, which is Christ in the millennium. There'll, there'll not be a fourth one. Now, you see how easy that was? I just laid out the book of Psalms for you. The next time you read the book of Psalms, just know that you have David who is typifying the nation of Israel, going through the tribulation, and you now can see this is Israel going through a tough time. This is Israel thanking God for their deliverance. This is Israel praising God and God being heard all over the land. That's the millennium. Now, once you get that down, once you understand that, it's easy to move into the inspirational side. 
Now, the doctrinal side is the Jew going through the tribulation. I'm going to use association and, and parallels now, and I'm going to see how that inspirationally, Psalms are so important for me because some of the Psalms are when I go through my personal tribulation, just like you will. So people are drawn to it. And then there'll be times when God gives me great deliverance, and I'll have my favorite Psalms that I quote, thanking God for what He's done. And then there'll be times when I just want to praise the Lord and give Him all the honor and glory for who He is. That'll be the Millennial Psalms. Now, historically, so easy that was. Now, historically, it's David. And it's David in a time frame about 1000 BC. And it's written the same three ways it's David going through his tribulation. It's David looking at God for his deliverance from Saul, type of the Antichrist. And then it's David and just enjoying his walk with God. Now, how much easier does it get? Now, there's one whole book of your Bible that you came here today that you can walk out of here saying, well, I got that. How easy does it get? And that doctrinal, historical, and inspirational application is the key to everything. It's the key to your Bible. Your New Testament follows the same pattern. you got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Acts, which is your historical books. They, Acts takes you into Paul's writings, which is to the churches, which is your practical books. And then Hebrews takes you into the rest of the books, and there is your doctrinal books. Same format. And our passage today in Proverbs chapter 23, verse 13 and 14, will just to be another easy example on how these three things work. The key to knowing the Scriptures. The key to that Bible unlocking itself. Most of God's people spend too much time trying to unlock the Scriptures. You just got to sit back, follow a few rules, and let the Scriptures unlock themselves. And for the bottom line, this is the key to putting your Bible together and making it work for you. And this passage is as good as it gets in doing that. So, with all that in mind now, let's look at these verses. Let's read them again. Let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll begin to look at these things. And I want to I show you how they work. It says, Withhold not correction from the child, for if thou beatest him with the rod, he shall not die. Thou shalt beat him with the rod, and, he, and shall deliver his soul uh, from hell. Caleb, would you stand up and ask God's blessing on the message for me? <clears throat> Now, now look at the verse. Look at verse 13. Remember now, doctrine is first. So that's where we're going to start. Now I'm going to show you how it's easy just to stop a, 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 a hop, skip, and a jump to the other two. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I, I told you how important it was to learn to observe. Look at verse 13. Now don't say anything. Don't raise your hand. Don't cry out. Don't, uh, but let me ask you a question. Observing verse 13, if you're just looking at that and you're reading it, what do you see? What do you observe in seeing that? Well, I'll tell you what I observe. I, I know how he, the catchy way he, he uses the phrase here, the child. I noticed that he didn't say, my child. He didn't say, your child. He didn't say, a child. He said, the child. 
That is a reference to a specific reference about that child. And doctrinally, this child here that he's making a reference to doctrinally will be the nation of Israel. We see that again in John chapter 3. We see another example of it. The Bible, the story in Nicodemus. The Bible says that Nicodemus uh, was a great ruler and he came to Jesus by night. And he says, he says, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, because no man can do these miracles if thou doest, if God could be with him. And Jesus answers back to him, Nicodemus, verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, we all use that verse for winning people to Christ. Absolutely nothing wrong with it. That's the practical application. But you got to start with the doctrine. Did you ever wonder why he said, he didn't say to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, except you get born again, you're not going to see the kingdom of God? Did you not observe that? I mean, why did he take a man who just confessed who he was, who actually outdid the scribes and the Pharisees of believing everything about God that they were supposed to believe, and he says, we know that thou art a teacher come from God because no man can do these miracles of God be with him. And then when, when Jesus answers him, he says, except a man, a man, a man, a man. He didn't say, Nicodemus, I really appreciate you recognizing who I am, and I want to tell you, you need to get born again. He didn't say that. He said, except a man get born again. Now, why did he do that? You've got to observe those things. Because doctrinally, Nicodemus couldn't have got born again if his life depended on it. Holy Spirit of God hadn't even come yet. That's the day of Pentecost. He, no, no, the, the, the events that brought the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit of God coming to indwell believers, has not even transpired yet. You know why he said, except a man? That's a specific reference. He's talking about Israel. And if you know your Bible, you know that Israel gets born again as a nation at the second coming of Christ, as a nation. Times of refreshing, the Bible says. And that's what, he, that's what you're dealing with. You've got to learn to observe these. The child will be Israel. The man will be Israel. And so this passage will be a tribulation passage here uh, in, in Proverbs chapter uh, uh, 23. It's dealing with Israel going through the tribulation as God's child and God giving them a really good whipping for their disobedience. Now, I, I can't pass this up. All the new Bibles today. You know, all the new Bibles, all the new translations have one thing in common. You'll never learn anything about the Bible from them of any depth. That's why the people, the pastors, the people who use these Bibles in their churches, that's why they're all milkmen. That's why they're all surface. There's no depth to them at all. Now you look at, go to, a, go to an NIV, and you look over there at Proverbs chapter 23, where in yours it says the child. You know what it says in the NIV? It says a child. It destroys the reference. Now, I know you got a lot of guys out there that, that like the New King James Bible. They're dumb enough to believe that the New King James Bible is just a rework of the Old King James Bible, so it's okay. You know what your New King James Bible says? It says the same thing the NIV says. You know why it says that? Because it's off the same corrupt text that that one's off of. That's why. Now, when you get over to John chapter 3, where your Bible says, except a man, you know what the NIV says? Except, except no one be born again. They completely destroy the reference. 
And the King James Bible comes trumping in and says, unless, unless you get born again. And you're going to tell me that the guys that translated that didn't know that the Holy Spirit of God hadn't come yet and you couldn't get born again if you stayed up all night and looked for it in the Bible with a laser beam and a flashlight? You say, well, I go to a church where they don't teach that. My pastor doesn't say that. Yeah, that's because he's a milkman. Or chocolate milk today? Oh, that was just so wonderful today, Pastor. It was so wonderful. The milk is still running out of my mouth. <laughs> Doctrine. All scriptures given by inspiration and is profitable for one doctrine. I don't care what he says. I don't care what I say. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. Now note the second key word here back in Proverbs 23. This is the doctor now. This is how you figure it out. Beat him with a rod. And I've heard pastors get up there, nothing wrong with it, making a practical application that you have to, you know, go out and get a, get, get a, 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 a rod that you actually whip them on the rear end with. Ball bat in some cases. I get it. But in the doctrinal application, which is number one, is where we're going to start. In your Bible, there will be two rods. You want to learn them. There's two rods that God uses with the nation of Israel. And they both represent something. When we can take them and make a practical application once we see the doctrinal. Now the first rod we have is Aaron's rod. That'll be Numbers chapter 20 and Numbers chapter 17 verse 10. That's the rod that, that budded. And that represents the priesthood. Then you have Moses' rod, which is found in Exodus 1 through 12. That's what he turns the waters to blood with. That's what he brings all the plagues against Pharaoh with. And in Exodus chapter 17, when they don't have any water, and God tells him to go to the rock and take that rod and smite that rock, and the water comes out, that rock is a type of Christ. And he used Moses' rod... Because Moses' rod was the rod of judgment. So it's a picture of God smiting his son with judgment for you and for me. And when he smoked the rock, the water, the word of God, Holy Spirit of God came out. There's two rods in the Bible. And you just can't read the word rod there and not get the context of understanding what happens. Now notice how you begin to use Key words in the Bible to open up the Bible. The rod in verse 13 and 14 will be the chastising rod of God on the nation of Israel's sin. You know why Moses didn't get into the promised land? He didn't get into the promised land because some 20 years later, they're out of water again. And this time, they're all murmuring because they don't have nothing to drink. And God says, okay, Moses, go to the rock. And this time, you speak to the rock. Tell the rock, give me some water. Well, Moses was, was mad at the people. He was, he was upset. 
He was, he, they, they haven't done what's right. They're murmuring against him. He lost his temper. And instead of speaking to the rock, he took that rod of judgment and he smote the rock the second time. You say, well, you mean God didn't let him go in the promised land for that one little deal? You betcha. Why? Because that rock's a type of Christ. The first time, he was told to smite it because it's a picture of Christ being crucified. The second time, he's going to use Aaron's rod. He's supposed to speak to it because it's a picture after the crucifixion. He's sitting in heavenly places, and we don't crucify Christ ever again. See how that works? Now, he disobeyed God. But I want you to know, this is to throw this in, you don't have to pay extra for this. He disobeyed God. He smote the rock instead of speaking to the rock, but I want you to know, look at the passage, water still came out. In other words, God is not going to penalize somebody else's spiritual growth because you and I are stupid. Great principles, but that's doctrine. You'll never get that on the milk truck. You'll get homogenized chocolate, slow fat, skim fat, real fat, no fat, but you won't get any meat. That's doctrine. Now, I want you to notice something. I haven't given you one private interpretation of anything. I've not said, I think this. I, 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 all I'm doing is using the Bible to lay out the book the way God intended it to be laid out. That's what we do here. We're Bible believers. This is the Bible-believing church. If you're looking for a dairy farm, you're in the wrong place. You're going to be utterly disappointed. The importance of not changing the words in the Bible. Now, when you get the doctrinal laid out anywhere and get it working for you, remember now, key words are the chain of evidence uh, to the Bible. Words from Isaiah 28, verses 9 through 13, line upon line, precept upon precept, it's the words that form doctrines. So you change the words, you lose the doctrine. I, I, I cannot stress this enough. Now, we can move into the inspirational, the practical. You do this by taking the doctrinal application and then drawing parallels through association and contrast. The doctrinal is Israel is God's son, God's child, Exodus chapter 4. As a nation, the nation of Israel, God's child. And then you make the parallel as a Christian, John chapter 1, I'm God's child as an individual. So now, once I see the doctrinal, I understand how Israel's his child as a nation. I'm his child spiritually through a new birth. Then I can make the parallels. And the rod of God's chastisement he's talking about in Proverbs chapter 23 that comes into our life when we have our tribulation because of our disobedience. See how it works. 
say, well, I went to Bible college and they never taught me that. You need to get your money back. You got milked. This is so clear in the book of Hebrews. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 12. And I know this is a very familiar passage, but look at verses 5 through 11. It says, Ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked to him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with son. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? But if he be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then you are bastards and not sons. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they, our earthly mom and dad, they verily for a few days chastened us after our own pleasure, but he for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now, verse 11, No chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. In other words, when God gives Israel a whipping, when they get into the millennium, they're going to thank God for the whipping. In other words, inspirationally, when God gives me and you a whipping, it doesn't feel good at the time and we don't like it, but when you get to heaven, you're going to thank God for it. Or maybe, just maybe, if you ever grow up spiritually and get off the milk wagon and get into the meat farm, you'll thank God for it down here. That's one of the greatest principles anywhere in the Bible. And inspirationally, this, is, this will be, things like this will be the key to your relationship with God and a relationship to your own children and your church found right here. Uh, we can see the chastisement of God in our lives as God's child because of our own disobedience. Verse 5 says, my son. Verse 6 says, every son. You notice how he's being specific here? He's not like he was with Nicodemus, and he's not. This is after it's all taken place. This is after the crucifixion. So he says in verse 5, my son. You've got to observe these things. Verse 6, every son. Verse 7, God deal with you as sons. Verse 9, a comparison of our earthly fathers and our heavenly fathers. When we get a whipping from both of them at the end result, it brings about peaceable fruit. Now, how easy is that? I haven't went to the Greek one time. I haven't went to the Hebrew one time. I haven't taken anything you've given you. My private interpretation of what I believe, I have just simply followed the Bible. What a novel idea. Now, I'll show you another one since we're here. And this is, goes along with it, uh, that you can actually see it. But then we'll apply it to Proverbs uh, 23. Turn over to Psalms. Psalms 23. This is one of the most quoted passages that you're ever going to find. The Lord is my shepherd. Uh, wherever you go, this, this, this is the, there's two prayers in the Bible that all people, uh, uh, saved and unsaved, uh, just are all drawn to. Any movie, any movie you see, when it's an impending disaster and somebody's going to die or a mass die, they all, they, all, they all get together and they say, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Or they say, the one in the New Testament that they all go through, you know. 
our Father who art in heaven. Lincoln Arms, looking up. Tornado's coming. You're stuck. Can't get away. Boat sinking. On fire. You're trapped. You can't get up. No way out. What do you do? Link arms. Look to heaven and say, My Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Hurry up. It's coming. Give us this day our daily bread. That's what we do. Or we go here. Presiding over a bunch of dead people. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. It gives peace. Or supposed to. It's one of the most quoted places anywhere in the Bible. And you know what? It, it'll work for a child of God, but it won't work for an unsaved person. Now let's stop and look at it. Doctrinally, what is that? That's Israel in the tribulation period. Now I know a lot of Christians that like to take their own application of this. I mean, uh, you know, you can make the Bible say whatever you want. I've known Christians that had a trouble with the truth and telling you the truth. And they'll say, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie. <laughs> Some of you people like to drink, so you just take it to the next phase. Makes me to lie down by the still. But when you come down through here, you see and understand this is God leading the nation of Israel through the tribulation period. Verse 5, thou preparest the table before me in the presence of mine enemy. That's God feeding them in the tribulation period while the Antichrist is trying to kill them. Look at verse 6, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord. That's the millennium. So doctrinally, that's Israel going through their tough time in the tribulation, inspirationally, yeah, we can apply it to us. That's me and you going through our tribulation and God taking care of us. And that means something to you when you understand it as a Christian. Historically, it's David going through his tough times. Now, I want you to see this here. I don't want you to miss this. Observation. Verse 4 says, The rod... That's our rod of Proverbs chapter 23, verses 14 uh, through 14. That's the rod of chastisement, the judgment of our lives. And then he says in verse 4, the rod on thy staff. Now, there's two main aspects to your Christian life, and you better get it. There's the rod and there's the staff. And you learn this from the doctrinal application. The staff will be how God leads you through life by guiding you which way to go. And the rod is the judgment on our lives when we don't follow that leading. Two key aspects to your relationship with God. The rod and the staff. The staff to lead you and keep you and guide you to point the way. And the rod to give you a whipping when you don't follow it. See how easy that was? It wasn't even complicated. Now, along with that, we have here in the inspirational application a double application. And sometimes you're going to have those. And I know that's a little deep down the line, but that's okay. You don't have to worry about it. But not only is this a picture inspirationally of you in your relationship with God, but the other application, it's you as a parent with your child. And I won't go into all of it because we already did it a while back, but there's two things that you want to see. Our relationship with, with God will be our model for our disciplining our children. If you don't get that, you're in trouble. Our relationship with God will be our model for disciplining our children, our own children. 
And so many of God's people are so out of touch with God, they couldn't recognize God dealing in their life that they wanted to. Therefore, it never gets transpired down to their kids. And I might add, you follow it A to Z, from the beginning of it right to the end of the restitution. And that's a complete study in itself. You follow it from the rod to the staff. The second thing, there are certain actions that your child will get into uh, in life that will require you to exercise corporal punishment. I almost said capital punishment. <laughs> corporal punishment. Uh, every child is different and every parent, but I would say three of the biggies would be lying, open rebellion, hurting others, disrespect to the pastor. <laughs> and verse 13 says, he shall not die. Now, it's comedy taught that if you whip your child, you won't kill him. But in truth, it's saying if you deal with him now, you'll spare him from God coming down and dealing with him later, and sometimes God's killing him and taking him home. And if you don't think that happens, you better read 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 30, where he says, And for this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. Now, see how easy that was? We got the doctrinal, we got the inspirational, now let's look at the historical. And there's great things you can learn from history. Great things. Now, in a historical application, this will be Solomon's son, Rehoboam, who as a king over Israel after Solomon was a disaster. When you look at the captivity of the nation of Israel in 606 B.C., some 400 years after Solomon's on the throne, you will find that it was what Rehoboam did when he became king that put in motion the plan that ultimately destroyed the nation of Israel. It's the great principle of long-term and short-term. Nobody saw short-term what Rehoboam did, but the long-term consequences destroyed the greatest nation the world has ever seen. What he did was, is he divided the kingdoms. Once he became king, he divided the nation of Israel into two sections. This is why when you get past Solomon, you find that the, you have two, you have the ten northern tribes, which are called Israel. You have the two southern tribes, which are called Judah. Rehoboam takes the two southern tribes, and Jeroboam, who was one of Solomon's generals, takes the ten northern tribes. And now we find the concept that we ought to learn something from history, but we never do, is the concept of divide and conquer. Once Rehoboam foolishly divided the nation, they were doomed. Now they're not one nation, not unified anymore. Now they're two nations, and they actually go to war with each other, much like the America and the North and the South in the Civil War. In fact, that's a great parallel to study. You see, what happened now is Rehoboam, the devil through Rehoboam, split the nation of Israel, divided them, and now he's going to conquer them because now they're not under one authority anymore. Listen to me. Now they're under two authorities. Now we can learn from history. Divide and conquer is one of the greatest principles that you're ever going to find anywhere in the Bible or anywhere in, in the history of the world. Police officers do it all the time. I can't figure out why, why, why God's people can't see it. 
you get three guys that just committed a murder. And you catch all three of them. And you bring them in. You don't set them down in a room together and say, okay, what really happened? You divide them up. You put one in this room, one in that room, and one in this room. And when you divide them up, you conquer them. They're sitting there, they all told each other, nobody say a word, nobody say a word. We ain't saying nothing. Good. You divide them up, they're sitting there. I want my lawyer. Well, uh, just tell us what happened. I'm not telling anybody. Who shot this guy? What guy? I don't know what you're talking about. I wasn't even there. I'd go on all night. So you divide and you conquer. You play the game, you go on for a while. Then another detective walks in and says, go ahead and take him down and book him. And you say, and you say why, what happened? He says, the other guy copped the police and said he's the one who shot him. What? I didn't shoot him. It was so-and-so that shot him. See how it works? You divided him. You conquered him. You separated him. Walk in about 45 minutes later and said, it's over. We're good. You're going to be... You're going to go to the gas chamber. Murder one. What do you mean? Your buddies copped the plea. They told us the whole story. They told us that you pulled the trigger. It was your idea. It wasn't my idea. It was Frankie's idea. It was Johnny's idea. It was his wife, Lucy's idea. You slow down while I get all these names down here, who it was. Divide and conquer. You don't even have to play good cop or bad cop. Separate them. Walk in and said, well, we're done here now. We're going to take you down and book you for, for, for capital murder, murder one. Your buddies just caught the plea. They worked out a deal with us. They're going to testify against you, and we're going to let them go, and you're going to fry. You had your chance to tell us the truth. We could have worked something out. Not now. Take him down. Wait, 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 wait. It was him. Then you go back to the other room, and you say, Take him down and book him. Murder one. What do you mean? Your buddy just copped the plea over here. Frankie, your buddy? And then you show him the video of him saying, it was him, it was him, it was him. Now you got him. You know how you started that whole process to end the case? Divide and conquer. That's how you do it. I mean, it's so simple. And you, I, I, and, you know, you see it, you see the same concept in, in people, in, in families, in, in principle in families and churches. When you allow your child to divide your family, you got trouble. When a disobedient child of God is allowed to divide people within the church, you got trouble. The key to everything in families and Christianity and churches is oneness, unity, one body, one church, one spirit, one book, one mind. That's your job as a parent to keep your family one. It's my job as a pastor to keep the church one. When that happens, the dividing and the conquer. You're in serious trouble as a family and as a church because the Bible says in Matthew chapter 12, verse 25, another great principle out of the historical lesson, a house divided cannot stand. Well, the lessons of history, 
are incredible. What we learn from history, not just the doctrinal inspiration, but the history itself. Once you get the first two, it just opens up the whole thing for you. You cannot have two authorities. America is done today. America is finished. America is on its way down to the dredges. And you know why she is? Because she is a house divided. In Washington, they can't get anything done. They couldn't pass a bill to put in a Coke machine. They fight about every. You see, there was a time that it didn't matter. You had the Democrats and the Republicans. When they both fell under one authority of the Word of God, it made it work. But once you throw out the Bible and they too become the authorities, this is what you have. So America's finished. Why? Two authorities. You cannot stand with two authorities. American families, they're done. They're done because they're a house divided. They allow the child to divide them. They don't follow that brick wall concept that, that it's, my, it's the rules of the road, that this is what we do. They allow two authorities to come in. Your kid will play it all the time. They'll want to do something. They'll want to come to go someplace, and they'll say, go up to the mom, and they'll say, hey, I want to go over to Susie's tonight. We're, she's having a party, and she invited me, and I want to go, but it's going to be a late party, and uh, uh, I, I, I just... I, I, I want to really want to go. And the mother says, you know what? You need to get, ask your father for that. So she goes over to the dad and she says, hey, dad, I want to go to a big party over at my friend's tonight. Mom said it was okay if it was okay with you. You know what she's just done? She's divided. She played the system. Mom and dad should have been already on the same page. No party at Susie's. Nothing against Susie. No pardon at Susie's. And that's the way it works. Israel in the tribulation, getting right so they don't wind up in the lake of fire. Verse 14 says, Thou shalt beat him with the rod and shalt deliver his soul from hell. That's, that's what happens. You know, God has formed in our world three institutions, civil government, the family, and the church. And all three today have become divided. And Christianity is absolutely done today because with two Bibles, two authorities, or multiple Bibles and multiple authorities, the house is divided. The only thing that men never learn from history is men never learn anything from history. And so all three of God's institutions now have become divided. The government's divided, the family's divided, the church is divided. There we are. I haven't stepped one inch outside that book this morning. I just walked you through the clear principles comparing Scripture with Scripture. The importance of history. Hey, listen, when the nation of Israel started their descent into the black hole and the abyss of apostasy, it was when Rehoboam, a fool, decided to divide God's people and give them two authorities. And when the church started its descent into the black hole abyss of apostasy, read Revelation chapter 3, it's when, the, it's when the devil got the churches and the pastors to take another Bible outside of the one that was God's, and now you've got two authorities. You say, well, I've never heard that before. That's because you're hanging out with the milk guy. And my, my, how easy that was. And I mean, in a hundred short years, we went through from bearing the Bible to the world. 
to now Bible studies at one big church here in the Kansas City area. And their ministry is called Beer in a Bible. Steve Bracking told me last week, he's not here this morning, he told me that um, a group of men came in from a church here in the Kansas City area and uh, they uh, shot at his range. That was, it was What they have is every week they have a men's group that they go out and they do something with and they have something. And then he, he invited Steve to go. And that was the wrong guy to invite, trust me. He says, we're going, he says, yeah, we're Christian. We go to so-and-so church up here in Lee Summit. He says, we, uh, we, uh, we, uh, uh, we go out and do something, and then we're going over here to this bar, and we have a Bible study. It's called our Beer in the Bible Ministry. Now, how did we get to that? Do you know when they legalize marijuana in Missouri, and they're going to, there's going to be Jesus high on a mountain, brother. And you're going to be right there with him. We have lost our minds. Billy Sunday spent his whole life preaching against booze. And we just don't even know who he was. That's because you're living on a dairy farm. All right, verse 14, thou shalt beat him with the rod. And pastors, too. Thou shalt beat him with the rod and shalt deliver him soul from hell. Now, again, doctrinally, this is Israel in the tribulation getting right so they don't wind up in the lake of fire, Revelation chapter 20, through a good solid whipping in the tribulation period. You'll find this in Matthew 25 when he divides the sheep from the goats. Inspirationally, it's you and me or your kids. Bible discipline the right way will, will, will be a key to getting them to God and then keeping them there uh, early in life. But I want you to know that real authority will, will always have to have three things. If you're going to have an authority in your life, a final authority, one authority, it's going to have to have three things. It's going to have truth, it's going to have to have discipline, and it's going to have to have accountability to it. And that's for Israel, that's for your family, and that's for this church or any other church. And without those three, you're done. A couple of weeks ago in Proverbs 23, I think I was in verses 9 through 12, I told you, no matter what problem you have, whatever you're struggling with, whatever your issues are, uh, we can fix it. We can fix it if you'll just bring three things to the table. If you will dedicate yourself to three fundamental things, I don't care what your issue is. I don't care what your problem is. I don't care what you're struggling with. If you just bring three things to the table, we can get it done. The first thing I told you, if you remember, was truth. you got to have a baseline to start with. you got to have the doctrine that tells you what is right and what is wrong. The second thing you have to do or bring to the table is total honesty, transparency. You have to be honest of where you're at, honest with, with what you want to do. Don't tell me or us that you want to do one thing and then while we believe you are, you're out doing something else. You got to get real about your issues. And the third thing will be accountability. Accountability is the key to it. Uh, you, make it uh, you make it by keeping yourself accountable to those principles and you realize that historically you look back in your life and understand that the mess that I'm in right now is because of the bad choices I made back here. 
and you have to be accountable to something to fix it. Give you the authority and authority that you can live your life by. Now these three are found in doctrine, as I said, truth. The doctrine of the Bible is truth. It forms the baseline. Then your honesty. It's not about just you being honest with me or the person you're working with. It's about you being honest with yourself. Recognizing where you're at. And then your accountability. Historically looking back and seeing your life and the mistakes that you made. And then not making anymore. When I, when I deal with people who've got tremendous problems and they come in with me and they say, I want to get my life turned around and I want to get, I want to make progress. I want to get out of the mess I'm in. Now, you know and I know and I make it clear to them that 20 years of screwing up is not going to be fixed in one hour with Bob Alexander or two hours. But I always tell them this. I said, we can't fix all your problems tonight, but we can start the process to turn your life around. And it's going to start right now, here tonight, by you just doing one thing. If you'll do this one thing, this is the pathway to put these other three things in to get to where we need to be. You know what that one thing is? Stop making bad choices. Stop making bad decisions. It has been the source of your problems all through your life. You've made one bad choice after another. They have compounded themselves. They've grown legs. They got entangled. And now here we are. We can work through that, but we do not need to add one more beer can to the pile. No more bad choices. Now you can see how that today was not only a great principle in Proverbs chapter 23, but it was a great teaching tool. It shows you how that in any place in the Bible, and those are easy ones. There are some hard ones. But you learn the hard ones by mastering the easy ones. And it helps you put your Bible together, seeing any passage, any book, any chapter, looking at it doctrinally, and then seeing it as it applies to you inspirationally, and then actually seeing how it plays out in history. When you put the three together, you have the context, the importance of these three things working for you. You don't want to be a milkman Christian. You want to get out of the dairy farm. You want to get into the meat business. You want to start because strong meat belong to them that are full of age, who have exercised their senses by using the things that God has given them. Making the Bible work for you, a working knowledge of the Scriptures. Making your life, making your family, making our church better one doctrine, one principle at a time. And through that, we do what we do here. We build Christian character through the doctrines of the Word of God. Showing you what's right, showing you what's wrong, showing you how to fix it, showing you how to keep it fixed. Simply using the Scriptures. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Father, we do thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus.